Good morning. If you have a copy of God's Word, we'll be in James chapter 2 today. Uh, my name is Aaron. I'm the teaching pastor here at Living Hope. Glad you're here this morning. I uh, wanted to share something neat with you that I just witnessed. Uh, so one thing that I try to do each week is be at the front door uh, when people are coming in. It just allows me to, to pastor a little bit better, and I've shared that before. But as I was standing there at the front door, uh, I was just outside the door, doorway of our nursery, and they didn't know that I was standing there. And I heard them getting the snacks out for the little kids. And before they even uh, went to eat those snacks, I heard the teachers leading our little nursery infants and toddlers in a prayer time before they had their snack. You say, well, that's not, what's so neat about that? It's not just child care. They're investing in them spiritually, even through teaching them that before we even eat, let's thank the Lord that we even have this blessing. And so I just thought that that was absolutely incredible. And that makes me thankful for the adults that invest into our children. I also want to say thank you. Many of you prayed for us uh, this past Monday and Tuesday. We hosted two pastors from Arkansas uh, Monday and Tuesday here at our church campus and took them around to meet several of our partners that we partner with as Living Hope Columbus. And uh, they loved it. They loved our church. They loved uh, just hearing stories of what God has done through our ministry. And so at the end of March, we're going to be having a team of 20 college students joining us for a week. And so you'll get to meet them, and they're going to do some ministry alongside of us. And then in June, we're going to have a team of about 15 to 20 high school students that are going to be staying here on campus and then ministering alongside of us as well. And so uh, the Lord is expanding our influence and expanding our partnerships uh, because, remember, it's not about building a castle. It's about building the kingdom. And so we're, we're trying to partner with as many churches as possible in that. James chapter 2 is where we're going to land this morning, uh, looking at five verses here, talking about this idea of gold fingers and filthy clothes. If you will stand with me in honor of reading God's word. We see every week one of our values is that we are for the gospel, which means we celebrate what Jesus did, but we also highly value and respect the word of God. James chapter 2, starting in verse 1, God's word says this, My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism as you hold to the faith in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. For if someone comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and dressed in fine clothes, and a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in, if you look on, with favor on the one wearing the fine clothes and say, sit here in a good place, and yet you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool, haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Jump down to verse 8. Indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in the scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Let's pray. Jesus, I pray a blessing upon our morning today. Father, give us the ears we need to hear your word, hearts to receive your word, hands and feet to pursue Jesus when we leave this place today. God bless your word, Lord. I just pray that you move among us today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. Well, today is your lucky day. For many of you, I guarantee that in the next 30 seconds, this will become your favorite day at church ever in the history of your church existence forever and always because I am going to show you a photo here in a moment that maybe some of you have seen, many of you probably haven't, uh, that was literally one of the shining moments of my life, the peak of my existence. Um, it's never gotten better than this moment. I'm going to give you a little countdown because you're going to love this. Three, two, one. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? Awesome. My friends, that is... Aaron Taylor, circa maybe 15 years old, prom, eighth grade. Some of you are all, wait, wait, how'd you go to prom when you were in eighth grade? Get on my level, people. 
I've been to prom six to eight times, if that tells you anything about how I grew up. And I thought in this picture I was pretty cool stuff, wearing my, my help me Jesus. Anyways, can we take that down, please? No, for real, take it down. I want to be able to focus, all right. You see, I, I show you that picture because if you're anything like me, when, when we grew up, what we wore uh, was very important. What The kind of clothing that we had was important to the social ladder in which we found ourselves. And you're probably looking at that picture going, well, apparently you didn't get too high on that ladder. But uh, it mattered. And we all experienced that on, on some level in some capacity. I remember in middle school, I was just trying to think back through my childhood years these past few days, and in middle school, my favorite attire to wear was basketball shorts, my Michael Jordan Chicago Bulls jersey, and then I would, all, I would also wear a, I've had a big old gold chain with a spray-painted silver dollar, spray-painted gold attached to the end, and man, I thought I was hot stuff. You didn't think it could get better than the white tux, did you? In early high school, for me, I was into BMX and skateboarding and all of that stuff, so we would wear the, the large, baggy uh, cargo pants with the big T-shirts. And then in late high school, we transitioned into that season where it was the Abercrombie polos with the flipped collar. Y'all remember those with our hemp necklaces? Y'all, I had it going on. You just don't know. But with each phase, each phase, what you wore then determined what category you were placed in in the social structure of school or your friendships or whatever that looked like. We all experienced that at some level. But the more I thought about it and I began to read kind of through James chapter 2 in our chapter here, um, those categories, although they change, they never leave. Right? As we, as we age and as we move throughout society and into different vocations, different places where we live, hobbies, whatever that is, we continue to be categorized in different capacities. We're categorized by where we work, on what kind of vocation we have, what part of town we find ourselves residing in, what kind of vehicle we drive, how much money we make, what hobbies we are involved in. We're, we find ourselves in all of these various categories, no matter where we are and what phase of life we find ourselves in. And with each category, one thing that we have to really fight as, as human beings and as Christians as well is we then want to aspire to be in somebody else's category. They've made it further than I have. They've accomplished more than me, and I want to get from here to where they are. We then sometimes, if we're not cautious, we put ourselves in these self-imposed categories of you don't know what I've gone through in the past, therefore I'm broken and damaged. You don't know what I've seen. You don't know where I've been. I'm stuck in this spot because of my past. But in this really practical section here in James chapter 2, I love this because James reminds us in both of those spheres that God is not impressed in any way, shape, or form with where we've been, who we are, or what we have accomplished. doesn't impress him. God's not impressed with the categories in which we find ourselves. In fact, we can take it to the other end of the spectrum as well. No matter what self-imposed category you may have placed yourself in, understand that God never puts you there. He's not impressed with what you've accomplished, and He never puts you where you think you are at this point in time. 1 Samuel 16, verse 7 reminds us through Samuel that God, can, can, God cares more about the condition of our hearts than our category, our status, or position in this world, whether it be good or it be bad. That's what He's concerned with. 
You see, we have this tendency, and I'm going to continue to harp on this today because I want us to see how wrong this is, to place ourselves on these levels, put ourselves in these categories, express that I'm better than this person because they're, they're here and I'm, I'm here, and we, we do this over and over and over. But as the old saying goes, my pastor said this all the time growing up, that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level. There, there's no tears at the foot of the cross. There's no categories. There's no position or status at the foot of the cross. The ground is level at the foot of the cross where Jesus takes sinners and turns them into saints for His glory. That's the only impressive thing about my life is that Jesus saved me. Anything else is worthless. It doesn't matter. And God doesn't see it. And so we're going to take a few moments today talking about this idea of, of favoritism. These kind of self-imposed or categories we can sometimes place ourselves into. And really what I want us to see here and that James is going to make us land at is that in the body of Christ, these have no place. No place whatsoever. That if we're in Christ and gathered as the local church, as the New Testament talks about, that favoritism, categories, position, they're not there. They're not present and they shouldn't be present in the body of Christ. And James is going to give us some very practical pictures here about how this plays out in the context of the local church. So let's jump right into this. Two, two simple points today. If you're a note taker, write these down. The first one is the tension. The tension. Look at verse one with me again. James says, my brothers and sisters. Now just to press pause there, again, we want to make sure the, the point of teaching the word of God on Sundays is that we understand the scriptures well. So James uses this phrase, my brothers and sisters. We said last week, that this was a term of endearment between Christ followers. It was a, a phrase that they would often use, my brother in Christ, my sister in Christ, brothers and sisters. But you'll notice, too, that throughout James's letter here, what we're going to see is that James uses this really as a transitional phrase for us. If you read James 1 all the way through James 5, you're going to see over and over that James says, brothers and sisters, my brothers and sisters. He continues to use that phrase, and he does it for two reasons. Either he's changing topics on the, the reader, or he's about to say something that he really wants to catch your attention. He wants you to pay attention to what he's about to say because it's incredibly important. You see him use this phrase over and over and over. Here, he's changing the topic on us. Last week, we saw this idea of being a doer of the word. Not doing the word, but being a doer. A lifestyle of obedience to what God's word says. Now he's transitioning in this letter very practically to this idea of favoritism and categories. And let's look what he says in verse 1. My brothers and sisters, do not show favoritism. It's pretty straightforward. Do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith of our, in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a tension that he, he places on us here because the natural tendency is for us to show favoritism, place people in categories. We all do it. Hobbies, vocation, where we live, we naturally do this. And then, often we don't realize that we do this. Based on somebody's category, it determines how we treat them. No, I don't do that. We all do it. Based on somebody's category, it determines how we treat them. But then James tells us, do not show favoritism as you hold on to the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, if, if you are a Christian, then this can't be present in your life. If you put your faith in Jesus, then this tendency has to be broken down and gotten rid of. Why? Because in Christ, God shows no favoritism to anybody. God doesn't place us anywhere. Look at Acts 10, verses 34 and 35. It'll be behind me. It's Peter speaking. The apostle Peter said, Peter began to speak. Now watch this. Now I truly understand that God doesn't show favoritism. That's pretty clear. You may think to yourself, why is this, why is this, this is so simple, I understand this. 
We get it here, but we've never moved it here. We talked about that last week. We get it here, but we've never moved it here. That's why this is so important. God doesn't show favoritism, but in every nation, the person who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. I want us to see this play out. Matthew chapter 20. We're going to look at a, a pretty long story here. Because sometimes we, we think of this idea of, of God doesn't place us on any level. It's like we're, we're all equal in Christ. And it, it sounds good, but, but, it, but it's harder for us to really latch on to. Right? It's hard for us to latch on to. Now, look at what happens here in Matthew chapter 20. Jesus tells us this story. He says, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner who went out early in the morning to hire workers for his vineyard. All right, so a guy owns a vineyard. Pretty simple stuff. He needs people to go out and pick the grapes, bring everything in to, to work for him. So after agreeing with the workers on one denarii, he sends them out into his vineyard for the day. So it's probably about 6 o'clock in the morning. That was a pretty common start of the day for the Jewish culture. These people agree to head out into the vineyard, and they're going to work for one denarii for the whole day. 6 to you know, 5 p.m., whatever that is. All right? Pretty simple. Verse 3. When he went out about 9 in the morning, so three hours later, three hours has passed, Jesus, the, the landowner saw others standing in the marketplace doing nothing. People just stand there, need a job. He said to them, hey, you go into my vineyard also, and I'll give you whatever is right. So off they went. It's 9 o'clock in the morning now. They didn't agree on a price of what he was going to pay them to work, but he said, just go into my field. At the end of the day, I'll pay you. We'll square things up. All right, good. Now look, verse 5. About noon and about 3, so 2 Two kind of uh, situations are happening. He went out again and he did the same thing. Walks into the marketplace, sees people who aren't working. He says, you want a job? They say, absolutely. They head out into the field. I'll pay you what's right when you come back in. He does it at noon and then he does it at five. Or, yeah, noon and five. Or about three, I'm sorry. Now watch, verse six. Then about five, so we're at the end of the day. There's maybe 30 minutes left in our day. Now watch this. He went out and there's others standing there. Heads over to the marketplace. There's more people. And he said to them, why have you been standing here all day doing nothing? All right, these are kind of the moochers, man. They've been sitting there drinking Mountain Dew and watching YouTube videos. All right? And they said, because nobody hired us. Man, we've just been sitting here watching cat videos on YouTube, and nobody said you want to go to work. This guy says, look, there's 30 minutes left in the day. I'm going to hire you. You go into my vineyard. I'll pay you what is right. Now look at this, verse 8. Evening came. It's 5.30, 6 o'clock. The owner of the vineyard called to his foreman, call all the workers in and give them their pay, starting with the last. So he calls the first group in that had only been out there for 30 minutes before he calls the other group in that's been out there for 11 hours. Now watch this, verse 9. Those who were hired at 5 came in, and what did they receive? One denarii. So when the first ones came in, they assumed, we've worked longer, we'll get more. But what does he give to them? One denarii. And then they began to complain to the landowner. These men only put in one hour and you made them equal to us who bore the burden of a day's work and the burning heat. These people were probably Baptists, man. Just whining about everything. We're a Baptist church. If you didn't know this, we can make that joke. Verse 13. He replied to them, friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Didn't you agree with me on one denarii? He says, dude, you agreed to the paycheck. Stop whining. This is what you signed up for. Take what is yours and go. I will give the last man the same as I gave you. Do, watch this verse. Don't I have the right to do what I want with what is mine? Are you jealous because, hear it, I'm generous? So the last will be first and the first will be last. Friends, one of the greatest mysteries in the kingdom of God is that God is not partial. 
You know somebody that followed Jesus at four is going to get the same paradise as the thief on the cross that followed Jesus for about three seconds? It's because our God is not partial. He rewards us all the same in the end. We don't deserve anything in this life, but he generously gives it to us. That's how we can come to this conclusion that there's no favoritism in the body of Christ. We are simply sinners who are made saints by the mercy and generosity of Jesus. And when I begin to understand that and I stop comparing myself to what other people have, the situations they're in, the lifestyle that they live, and I simply understand the generosity of God to me in Christ, that's when I begin to understand that I have no right to show any kind of favoritism, place anybody in any kind of category, because I'm, I'm a loser that Jesus made a saint, and that's everything. That's everything. I have no right to look at anybody differently because God has... Oh my gosh, Pastor Joe, I'm about to go nuts, man. We need a bigger stage so I can run. Somebody said no running in church today. I do what I want, all right? But here's what's interesting about this is we know this to be true. We see it in... Matthew 20 is often used in this salvation sense, but we can take it over to just practically in the local church that God doesn't show favoritism. And we get that and we know that. But it doesn't always play out that way, does it? Watch this. Look at the test, starting in verse 2. So James tells us this, like, incredible truth. Don't show favoritism because you're a Christian. God's not a respecter of persons. Like, man, honor everybody. There's no Jew. There's no Greek. Nothing, man. We're all one in Christ, and that's important. God is so generous to us. That's incredible. But look at what he says. He puts us to this little test. Verse 2. For if somebody comes into your meeting and they're wearing a gold ring. So we're at church now. James stated a truth. He's like, all right, we're about to go to church. Watch this. Somebody's wearing a gold ring and they're dressed in fine clothes. And a poor person dressed in filthy clothes also comes in. So the truth has been stated. Now James puts us through a test. He's going to get super practical. He says, we go to church and a couple of visitors show up to church. All right, so this is Living Hope Columbus on a Sunday morning. Let's just make this super practical. Most churches, if a visitor shows up, that's typically a good thing. That's what you want to see because the goal is for a visitor to feel welcome. Then they become family and become part of what God is doing. Right? So how you receive a guest is important. Look at verse 3. If you look on favor with the one wearing fine clothes... I'm sorry. Let's jump back. Let's jump back because I got lost in my notes. Where am I? Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here. So the first visitor walks through the door. Now, pay attention to the, the imagery James uses here. We've got a rich person and a poor person. The rich person comes walking in and it says he's got a gold ring on his finger. Now, culturally, for Jewish culture, if you wore any kind of large ring, especially a gold ring, it meant that you were extremely wealthy. All right, this was important. This was something that you, if somebody saw this, you'd look at them and go, dang, I bet they drive a Ferrari. It's kind of a thing. All right, it's important. But the Bible says here in James, this is the only time in the entire New Testament that James uses this word here in the Greek to describe this person wearing a gold ring. But what he actually says is not that he came in wearing a gold ring. In the Greek, this actually says that he was gold-fingered. Only time used in the entire New Testament. Gold-fingered. What does that mean? It means this brother didn't only just have one ring. It meant his entire hands were covered in rings. Right? It's like somebody went in like the Super Bowl kind of a thing, rocking all of their rings, coming to church wearing their very best. That's what this guy shows up with. Second part, notice this as well. It says that this person comes in dressed in fine clothing. It's interesting, this phrase here in the New Testament is often used to describe the dress of angels. The way that angels are dressed. 
If you look throughout the New Testament, you see when an angel shows up on the scene, the Bible often describes their clothing as dazzling, brightest white. Right? Look at Acts 10, verse 30, be on our screen. Cornelius talking says, Four days ago at this hour at three in the afternoon, I was praying in my house, and just then a man, talking of an angel, in dazzling clothing stood before me. Uh, that, that idea communicated in this word here is like bright, shiny, glittery, like a ton of Clorox, it's so white clothing that this guy's wearing. So we're not, again, this is a figurative situation, but here's what James wants us to see. That the first person that comes rolling up into James's figurative living hope Columbus attracts attention to himself. He's got it rocking, man. He's going on. And when people saw him, he draws attention to what he's wearing and how he's dressed. But then another visitor shows up to church. The second visitor shows up, two visitors in one week. This is a good week for this church and James's pretend church. And watch this. It says that he's a poor person dressed in filthy clothes. You see the contrast present here? You got the guy that attracts attention, but then you got the poor person that shows up. The second visitor was struggling. The Bible actually, that word poor person is a term referring to a beggar. A person that would stand on the side of the road begging for alms. They had nothing in such a tough position that they resorted to humbling themselves to the lowest form to get anything that they could acquire. They had to resort to begging on the side of the street. Notice the contrast here. Person one has so much money that they're covering their hands in gold rings. Person two shows up and they got nothing. They got nothing to offer. They got nothing at all. Not only that, James describes his clothing as filthy. That's a word meant greasy clothing. If you're a boy in here in middle school, at some point in time, you probably wore the same clothing for multiple days in a row. I was a youth pastor for 12 years. We saw this more. I don't understand why boys think that you can wear greasy clothing and spray axe all over yourself, and it's fixed. <laughs> it's disgusting. Anyways, that's a side note. But you wear something long enough and too much, and what happens? It begins to get greasy and soiled. Now, again, look at the contrast here. The rich man is in dazzling white clothes, fine linens. The poor man comes in. James is trying to paint this very, very polarizing picture for us. The poor man comes in, and likely this is the only pair of clothing that he has because James calls it greasy. It means he's wearing it all the time. Now, here's where the rubber meets the road. How are both of these individuals treated? Verse 3. If you look with favor on the one wearing the dazzling clothes, the fine clothes, and say, sit here in a good place. Now watch. This hypothetical church rolls out the red carpet for the rich guy. He gets his donut, he gets his coffee, he gets a tour of the building, he gets taken around, he gets the best seat in the house. Man, he is treated like royalty as a guest in their church. Here's what's interesting. I've read this passage a billion times. Was there anything wrong with what this figurative church was doing up to this point in the passage? Absolutely not. In fact, up to this point in the passage, we could probably use this as a blueprint for a first impressions team at a church. Because they're treating a guest like absolute royalty. That's how we should operate as well. That's an area that we should uh, function in as well, that we can always get better in. But then James shifts it on us. And this is going to make sense here in a moment. Verse, verse 3, the second half. And yet, you say to the poor person, stand over there or sit here on the floor by my footstool. 
It's a little exaggerated, but again, he's painting a contrasting picture. Instead, the poor person, rather than being treated like royalty, nobody helped him get coffee, nobody offered him a donut, he doesn't get walked into the worship center, just completely ignored overall. In fact, James actually says when he walks into the church, somebody looks at him and says, hey, we don't have enough room, so you can stand over there. You can stand over there. There's not enough seats for you, sorry. Even goes a little bit further, and James paints these pictures a little bit more, and he says, "Um, actually, sorry, we're full, but... um, I mean, you could sit on the floor next to me if you wanted to. Can you imagine that here? Let me explain something to us real quick. This is a little side note. I felt this impressed on my heart this week. There's churches where people have their seats. Been in those before? I grew up in a church where people had their seats, and if you sat in their seat, you better move. Kind of a deal. I've actually seen it before. Somebody says, well, this is my seat. And you made the phrase like, well, you don't have your name on it. And they'd actually got a nameplate printed and like pinned to the bottom of the seat. I've never hit an old lady, but I wanted to. <laughs> Listen to me here. This is just a side note. Future, forward, living hope, Columbus. Um, nobody in here has their seat, all right? In, in this church, your seat becomes their seat. All right? If we ever get to the point where we're running out of space and we don't have enough chairs, you don't have a seat anymore. We get to be the ones standing on the walls and sitting on the floors because we not only exist for the growth of our members, but we exist for the people that don't know Jesus yet. So we don't have our seats. We have seats that become their seats at the end of the day. So that is free. Take that to the bank. All right? Change this scenario. Let's take it because I don't think this is a struggle for us, this poor person, rich person thing. I don't think this is something that, that we struggle with as a church, but let's just change the scenario on ourselves real quick. What if somebody from your past showed up to Living Hope Columbus this week? How would you treat them? Somebody that maybe you didn't like very much, that you used to work with, maybe you had a relationship with, maybe uh, in some capacity, and you just really don't like them anymore, but they came to church where they could actually encounter Jesus. How would we treat them, like the poor person or the rich person? Imagine for a second that somebody shows up to church that um, talks, talks different than we do, looks different than we do, acts different than we do. Uh, could they make it from the door to the seat without anybody engaging them in any capacity whatsoever? If that happens, man. God help us. should never be that way. Maybe it's the simple fact. You say, well, I've never showed favoritism in that capacity. You know how I often show favoritism in the church? Is a stranger that I've never met can come from the front door to in this room and leave, and I know they're here, but I'm more comfortable talking to somebody that I know than somebody I don't know. So I show favoritism to the person I'm familiar with rather than the one I'm unfamiliar with change the scenario, it's the exact same thing. Nothing changes here. James just wants us to see that other people are extremely important, and whether we realize it or not, and often subconsciously, we do place them into categories whether or not we want to. It's just the reality of what we do. The outcome is the same, even if the variables change slightly. Look at verse 4. Haven't you made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Friends, listen, if in the church, the one place where there should never exist favoritism categories, it doesn't matter where you came from, what you've done, who you are, where you work, what you own, none of that matters. James tells us, but if favoritism and categorization creeps its way into your church, at that moment, you are no longer like Christ, period. It doesn't work. We can't do that and show Jesus to people at the same time. Why? Because the ground is level at the foot of the cross, and we've got to take that to the bank. 
At the foot of the cross, everybody's valuable. At the foot of the cross, everyone is worth my time. Look at verse 8. We're going to begin to close. James says, indeed, if you fulfill the royal law prescribed in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself. One of the second greatest commandments. You are doing well. The whole premise of this incredibly simple passage is that there can be no favoritism in the context of the local church. And if people come to the church and they can't be treated right by everybody, then we might as well throw in the towel, close up shop, and go sell ice cream or something. Because it's worthless at that point. This has to be a place where people can encounter Jesus. And sometimes the only way that they're going to know Christ is how they're treated by Christians. Sometimes before somebody gets to the Word, they're going to go to a Christian first. And everything they know about Jesus is going to overflow from how we act, what we say, and how we treat them. Then they'll make their way to the book. We have to take this so seriously. What's the summation? James says it. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's what we teach our children. Treat people as you want to be treated. Two questions I've wrestled with this week, and I'm done. If you walked into Living Hope Columbus and were treated like the poor man in this passage... What would that tell people about the Jesus we claim to love? If we walked into the Living Hope Columbus this week and you were treated like the rich man, what would that tell people about the Jesus we claim to love? Sometimes the kindness of God is going to be most clearly manifested through his people. And at this church, we love Jesus a whole bunch so much so that we try to elevate him in everything that we do. So it doesn't matter where you've been, what you've done, where you work, what you do, where you are, what kind of past you have. At the cross, we believe we're level. I don't care what you've got going on now, where you've been, we're all here together. The Bible says in John 3.16 that God loved the entire world. That word all or entire or whole thing, however you want to translate it, encompasses everybody. Congratulations. It means nobody's out of his reach, and if nobody's out of his reach, then everybody's part of the family. And if we confess him as Lord, believe in our hearts that he's been raised from the dead, the things that separate us, that we put ourselves in categories over, all of a sudden no longer matter because the gospel unites us. The church is the one place on the planet that people from different walks of life, ethnicities, backgrounds, lifestyles, all of these crazy things can unite under the banner of Jesus. And what separates us doesn't matter because the gospel unites us. And we congregate together and say, you know what? We love Jesus. We want to be changed by Jesus. And we want you to be part of what Jesus is doing. No favoritism in the church. No categories. Because at the cross, the ground is level. Let me pray for us. Jesus, thank you so much for your word, for our time, for the privilege we have to be in your word together as a family. Jesus, I pray that we take the simplicity of this verse seriously. And Father, even something that maybe we don't necessarily see as a blind spot in our lives, Lord, we know that it is. And God, that you would help us take down those blinders and begin to see people as people that you want to save and redeem for your glory. God, may this never be a country club, Lord, but may it always be a battleship where we are constantly fighting for the souls of people to enter into your kingdom for all eternity. We love you, Jesus. Thank you so much for our time together, for this church, for what you're doing in our midst. 
and for letting us be a part of it. In your name we pray. Amen.